Today's episode is brought to you by The Masked Man Show on Channel 33. Each week, David Shoemaker and a rotating cast of experts break down all you need to know in the world of professional wrestling, another world that is near and dear to my heart. Even if wrestling sabermetrics aren't quite as sophisticated, you can listen to The Masked Man Show on the Channel 33 podcast feed on iTunes by going to iTunes.com slash The Ringer, or you can find it wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh, and I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And on the other line, it's my singing, strumming, accordion-playing co-host, Michael Bauman. Hi, Michael. I'm really excited that we're talking about what we're talking about today, because for the first time in seven days, I woke up with a song other than What Did Jerry DePoto Do <laughs> stuck in my head. So now I'm, I'm humming Arcade Fire's Neighborhood Number One Tunnels. <laughs> That's a good song, too. It's a way better song than <laughs> What Did Jerry DePoto Do? I'm just happy that you're still with me and that you didn't land a recording contract and jet off to Nashville or somewhere to cut your first album based on your, your demo from last week. I'll always re- you know remember my roots. I'm, I'm an extremely loyal person. So we will be discussing some new research that some writers at Baseball Prospectus have done and that will be going up this week about pitcher command and pitch tunnels, which we will explain shortly. But before we get to that, we do want to take a moment to remember two players who passed away on Sunday, Royals starter Giordano Ventura and Andy Marte, who many may remember as a former top prospect for the Braves and Indians and a major leaguer with those teams as well as the Diamondbacks. And after we recorded the rest of this episode, we heard the terrible news. They both died in separate accidents in the Dominican Republic. Car crashes. Ventura, of course, was only 25. And you've already written about him and your memories of him for The Ringer. And I read your piece and it was uncomfortably close, I think, to the piece that you wrote not very long ago about Jose Fernandez, which is sort of a a sad inevitability of this event. Yeah. That was uncomfortably close to the one I wrote two years before that about Oscar Tavares. I'm just, I mean, it's shocking and it's sad and it seems unfair that this is like the 14th most important thing about the story. But, you know, Ventura was a player that I personally enjoyed watching quite a bit, not only because of his unique skill set, but because of the way that he played the game, you know, his aggressiveness, his ability, you know, his uh, willingness to jaw at other players. I think that baseball would be better off if there were more players like him. But, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm just sick of writing that column over and over. Yeah. And of course, Ventura had mourned Tavares and Fernandez and had worn both of their initials on his cap in games and that makes this even more sad and he had a a lot of flair and style to him and at times he rubbed people the wrong way with how he went after guys and you know he was kind of one of those players who if he wasn't on your team maybe you sort of disagreed with his style at times I think in the way that we like or dislike baseball players in a very unserious way and we don't really know them and we judge them by their actions on the field. But I think regardless of what you thought of Ventura when he was pitching, this is terribly sad news. And he was a 
a promising pitcher. He had great stuff. You remembered how he just put his whole body into every pitch because he wasn't a big guy and he threw really hard and he had to just, you know, put all of his effort into it. And he had a a big follow through, almost fell off the mound Mm -hmm. just with the effort that it took him to get pitches up to that speed. And so I think we both like players who have a personality and show a lot of emotion on the field, regardless of what that emotion is. It makes baseball more entertaining. And so it's terrible to lose uh, another one at such a young age. Yeah, and the and the number of big events that he was involved in, you know, between a couple benches clearing brawls and the two big postseason runs that the the Royals made while he was on the team, like there was a lot of history to him already yeah. at such a young age, and you know, it's just frustrating and sad. Yeah, the Game Six start in the 2014 World Series, which was the day after the death of Oscar Tavares, was particularly memorable. Ventura gave up three hits to the Giants in seven innings, and the Royals. 110 nothing, And as you said, that was just one of many moments that we'll remember from his four years in the big leagues. So we are joined now by Jeff Long and Jonathan Judge, who, along with Harry Pavlidis, are the co-authors of the five pieces that form the backbone of Baseball Prospectus's Pitching Week, which is starting today at BaseballProspectus.com. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. And hello, Jonathan. Hey, Ben. So I am always interested in the work that you guys produce at BP. You've done some of the most cutting edge public baseball research of the last several years. And Judge, you and Harry have worked before on catcher framing and deserved run average. And I would say that both of those stats and the other things that you've worked on have improved on the existing metrics and maybe used different methods to answer the same questions that other stats have tried to answer before, you know, identifying the impact of the catcher on receiving the pitch and and improving the odds that it will be called a strike. And in the case of deserved run average, trying to isolate the pitcher's impact from that of the umpire or the defense behind him and various other factors. But this time you guys seem to have quantified things that really haven't been quantified before, at least on the internet. There hasn't really been a stat for the things that you are attempting to measure and provide stats for. So I guess we'll we'll start with command, which is the subject of the first piece that's running this week and should be up by the time that most of you are listening to this. And command, if you aren't familiar with the term, is kind of a better version of control. I don't know if that's fair to say, but if control is the ability to throw strikes, command is the ability to throw good strikes or to throw two parts of the strike zone as opposed to just lobbing it in there somewhere. And you've come up with a way to measure this. So Jonathan, do you want to start and explain if you can in kind of layman's terms how one goes about measuring command? Sure. So command is is one of those things that we is very elusive. Um, it's it's sort of like uh, obscenity uh, as far as most <laughs> scouts seem to be concerned. They know it when they see it. Yeah. Um, when you try to get a good explanation of what it is, they're like, well, you know, I mean, you know, this guy or this guy. I mean, he could really locate his pitches. And uh, OK, I mean, obviously, they're not going all over the place, but it's sort of hard to know how I know what you're doing if I don't know what you intended to do. And the most infamous attempt 
that I know of to try and do this was Command FX, um, right. which was, I believe, Jeff would know more about it, but I think it's based on sort of keying the pitch to the to the catcher's glove, sort of a kind of a an automated pitch framing to some extent sort of approach, but it's certainly received a lot of criticism and skepticism and people tell jokes about the ball ending up 10 feet below the ground. And it's, it's a neat idea, but it doesn't seem to be one that's really carried on. Mm -hmm. And so the funny thing about command is that we've actually had this sitting in our, in some form in our databanks ever since we did framing, because what it is most fundamentally is the same modeling that we do for framing it's just we've always of course pulled out a pitcher component a batter component an umpire component but i recall looking at the pitcher component at the time and saying well i don't know what the hell this is supposed to measure mm -hmm. um and because it was a weird mixture of people who were really good and yet also weren't particularly special it seemed and and i couldn't figure out how you were supposed to be anyway just i didn't see a connection at the time and then as we were sort of circling back this fall and uh, looking at, at pitch tunneling we sort of took a step back and tried to think about what the fundamental aspects are in terms of location before you even get to you know how you sequence getting to those locations and we circled back and took a harder look at it and Harry claims that he thought this all along and told us so. And I, I don't remember that, but Harry says it's true. <laughs> uh, but that he said, I think this is a, a synonym for command. And I didn't really understand why that was until we talked it through. But we realized there were these people who excelled at getting strikes that they shouldn't be getting in terms of the likelihood that that pitch would ordinarily be a strike. And that was sort of an odd concept of command for us. I mean, we'd always thought of command as that's where I wanted to go. And I don't think this necessarily is giving you that in that form. But what we're noticing is that there are certain people that are pitching in a certain zone. And a consequence of that is that they are getting more strike calls. And so we have this statistic, which I would never call pitcher command because I think that would be a little misleading, but that seems to strongly reflect people who do have excellent command. And uh, so that's how we ended up with uh, CSAA for pitchers. And that's called strikes above average. And is there a type of pitcher who tends to excel in this area? Like, is it, you know, you mentioned in the article that if you have great stuff and you throw really hard and your pitches move a ton, maybe you don't need command or you can get by without great command. Of course, maybe the, the best pitchers have both. But if you look at the players at the top of this leaderboard, Zach Davies, Josh Tomlin, Kyle Hendricks, who we'll talk about more. He's kind of the star of pitching week, probably. And Vogelsong and Leak and Greinke, you know, these are guys who in some cases have pretty good stuff, but you would not name them as the pitchers with the best stuff in baseball. So they need something else to get by, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you certainly see a lot of people who you're kind of wondering in the first place why they're here. Just looking at, and I think Jeff, who you know wrote, did most of the work on this, on the actual writing of the article, does a good job of saying, look at, you know, look at the stuff of some of these people. Look at over the course of the week, we'll look at you know somebody's Brooks profile, Brooks baseball, and you say, wow, these are like average or below ratings for all of these different 
pitches and how it breaks and how fast it is. And yet these people seem to survive awful well. If you go back a couple of years, Kyle Loesch was an absolute star at this um, CSAA stat in which he was just sort of masterful at just getting ahead of batters and just just really, you know, he had that sort of career renaissance toward the end with the Cardinals. Uh, then he kind of tapered off a little bit, but was still fairly effective with the Brewers. So yeah, it's that sort of uh, thing. The one thing that that Jeff does point out, which I enjoy, is that, well, I guess that's more of a, a call strike probability, but that's that's Bartolo Cologne, which is a completely separate fun issue. Yeah. You want to tell us about Bartolo, Jeff? Yeah. Well, I think one of the most important things that we do is we take a look at this from the standpoint of command and control are probably two totally different skills that are maybe highly related, but the way that they kind of manifest themselves is very different. Um, and a really good example of that is, you know, Bartolo Colon and Rich Hill are both really good control pitchers in that they're throwing the ball in the strike zone, quote unquote, a lot. And what called strike probability does to give us control more so than a zone percentage or some of the existing stats out there right now is that it looks at the actual called strike zone versus the, you know, reference or rule book strike zone or whatever you want to call it um, mm-hmm. that, you know, you see on a pitch FX plot. And it tells us it's kind of like those really annoying umpire bots on Twitter. That's like, Oh, that was called a ball. And, you know, normally that's a strike 88% of the time it's using that same concept in a much more rigorous way to say, hey, you know, we know that every time Bartolo Colon throws a pitch, there's a 52% chance that it's going to be called a strike because that is how that is the call strike probability on average of all of his pitches. And um, it is really interesting because Rich Hill's a really good one too, because Colon's sort of one where you're like, okay, yeah, yeah like he throws, you know, 90% fastballs or whatever that makes some sort of sense. Rich Hill's a guy that makes a lot of sense for being a control guy and not a command guy because he has stuff that moves a lot. Um, his curveball is massive. You know, his fastball has good life to it. So he's able to throw his pitches for strikes. He can find the zone, but in our command data, you know, he's not the best command pitcher in baseball by any means. So, you know, for him, he has such good stuff. It's just about getting it in the strike zone enough that he's not walking guys all over the place. For Cologne, he is really trying to induce weak contact and, and trying to you know, work the system. And he's actually quite good at both the command and control side of things. So you can really see, I think, by separating them out, how a pitcher approaches things and how their stuff works in tandem with their approach to get results. And one thing that a lot of people wind up asking themselves once, you know, any time there's a new leg of research or a new metric comes out is sort of the the baselines for what's good, you know, what's uh, very good and what's like the maximum advantage. So insofar as you're able to tell right now, how much is there like a number of runs that a really good uh, command pitcher would be able to save over the course of a season? You know, what sort of differences are we looking at? It's hard to quantify it really kind of specifically at this point. And one of the things that we talked about and we actually, you know, have reworked some of this stuff multiple, multiple times over the past couple of weeks. But one of the things we looked at is for called strikes above average, the baseline is zero. Uh, Right. So, you know, if you're at three, you're getting three extra strikes per 100 pitches. Um, And over the course of a season, that can be 50 or 60 extra strikes. 
And the value of a individual strike can range anywhere from, you know, 10th of a percent of a run to almost half a run in terms of linear weights. And that just depends on context. So if you're looking at 50, 60 individual strikes over the course of a season, depending on the context that pitcher's pitching in, it could add up to be as much as five runs or half a win in, you know, wins above replacement, or probably a little bit less than that, probably something in like the two and a half, three run range, just if we sort of neutralize context. But that's a pretty big number when you're just talking about getting extra strikes that maybe the pitcher doesn't quite deserve, you know, and it can be the difference between a three and a half win pitcher and a, you know, 3.75 win pitcher, which in my mind seems like a big difference, even though really it's pretty nominal. And for call strike probability, it's really kind of a couple of point bonus off of zone percentage or subtraction. In some pitchers' cases, we actually see that their call strike probability is lower than their zone percentage. So they're pitching to what, you know, a coach might say, hey, that's the strike zone, you're doing a good job. Or, you know, if they're working out in the offseason, pitching into one of those strike zone nets like they're hitting the zone but when it comes to getting calls or pitching in the areas where the umpires are actually calling strikes they're not getting those strikes called so for that it's hard to say a baseline i don't i honestly don't remember what the average is at this point but you know the best pitchers in baseball are just over 50 percent um and it really has to be taken into context with the call strike above average and generally what their approach is and what their stuff is because there's the other side of things like swinging strikes and things like that. So it's another piece of that puzzle to help kind of demystify the pitcher's approach. The thing that's interesting is that if you look at the CSAA for pitchers leaderboard, it's it's a it is kind of as we alluded to before, sort of like a a who's who of why is that guy successful in this league? And so it in a sense it's incredibly valuable to these pitchers. I don't think it would be it's quite as valuable or even remotely important to say a Clayton Kershaw who is doesn't care how much his ball you know moves around in the zone because you've basically got no chance anyway so it's almost kind of like if you think of the former high-end starter who then hits his 30s and has to learn some new tricks um i sort of feel like the top csaa people are the folks who sort of realized in their you know late teens early 20s they were going to need those tricks in the first place and (laughs) so it's just sort of he seems to be part of it, the identity of who these people are rather than something that you can say, well, if they only did this, they would gain or lose this much. It's about you kind of deciding the pitcher you want to be, um, which is a function of many things. You know, if your fastball struggles to hit 90 miles an hour, um, you probably are going to succeed by doing well in CSAA. And if you don't get there, you are probably going to be in trouble. And we should say for people who are maybe wondering, you know, called strike probability, well, how do you know what the probability of a called strike is? This is based on empirical data. So we have millions of pitches going back to 2008 or so that have been tracked. And we know how the location impacts the likelihood that any given pitch will be a strike and the count and the umpire and the batter and all of these factors that can go into that. And You've used a a statistical technique called mixed modeling for a lot of your work, which has proven to be very handy at kind of unraveling these thorny questions where there are 
many people involved in a certain outcome and you want to say what part did this specific player play in what happens. So that, I guess, has kind of formed the the backbone of, of all of this work that you've done recently and has been a powerful tool that has helped you look into things that maybe previous generations of researchers could not. Yes. Uh, and, it, and the nice thing is that the actual there are some more models that show up later when we start to apply some of the other things that are now being derived. But right now, this is the same model that is driving catcher framing. Um, what's the likelihood of that pitch being a strike and how many more of those strikes are you capturing? I think at this point, it has truly become generally accepted. We have a while where, you know, and I think people just needed to be convinced, but you had a lot of, well, I think it's a function of their pitchers. There started to be some write-ups as of late suggesting it's about height or how fast you throw the ball. Um, without naming any names, I will I will simply say that there has been lots of head shaking back and forth over at Baseball Prospectus as we say that's really not true. Some people do have this skill, and the neat thing is is finding out that it isn't quite as direct as it was with framing where you say, okay, that's where that pitch was. That's where the pitch ended up. Obviously, the the catcher had something to do with that and keeping it in the right zone. But here we do sort of answer the other half of that skepticism, which is I think pitchers are contributing to. Well, they kind of are, but it doesn't seem to be for the reason that people would assume. It has to do with how command pitchers tend to work the strike zone. And that seems to inure to their benefit when it comes to actually getting borderline calls. So maybe we can end the command segment here with Tom Glavin, who is maybe the the pitcher best known for having this ability. And Jeff, you looked into him. So can you tell us about how Glavin stacks up and also just how generally command or the ability to expand the strike zone has changed over time as the strike zone and the way that it's called have themselves changed? Well, actually, Ben, if you don't mind, I'll let Judge give you the Tom Glavin soliloquy because he is (laughs) in love with Tom Glavin, I think. (laughs) Okay, go ahead, Jonathan. Sure. You know, Tom Glavin is one of those people that um, I I had been actually sort of down on before this project. Deserved run average does not like him very much. It, It views him as somebody who sort of came in at the right time, pitched a contact guy, and largely he was good when the Braves defense was good and was not very good when the Braves defense was not very good. So he was someone that I kind of had had mixed feelings on, but whatever you read about him, and I wasn't really paying much attention to baseball when he was at his prime, you see batters just raging about how he is getting these strike calls that are not even remotely fair. And I can't remember which umpire it was, but I, it was like a 1997 like playoff game or something. Some umpire was calling a strike zone that was so bad that I was I was watching it to get a reminder of how um, exciting strike zone calling used to be, um, particularly between leagues. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Glavin was that supposedly he was working this, and you know it was sort of a well if 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 it you know, if it wasn't a strike, then Mr. Glavin wouldn't have thrown that pitch, sir, sort of thing uh, going on. And so we only have one season for him, his last season, you know, in the major leagues, which where pitch FX is also present. And so one thing that we do here is that in addition to taking your called strikes above average for a year, we also basically create a sort of Z score in which we say, okay, how how many standard deviations above or below average are you in somehow getting strikes out of the pitch that you throw? And that's kind of important to have that comparison to your peers, kind of like the 
you know, the OPS plus idea or WRC plus or things like that. The idea being I can then compare across seasons. If the strike zone has been uh, getting more uniform as it has, a certain mark, you know, a few years ago might not be impressive, as impressive as it is now. But Glavin's 2008 season is just ridiculous. He was getting, it wasn't, I believe, even a full season. But even with all of the sort of conservative checks that we have on the call strikes above average, he is multiple. I think it was like seven standard deviations better than the mean in terms of getting strikes that just weren't. So that is absolutely consistent with the frustrations that we would hear about batters saying, well, of course I swing at everything and I generate a crap grounder. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> either either I, at least I have a chance if I swing at it. If I don't, it'll just be called a strike anyway. So it's neat, as always, to have the numbers sort of confirm something that people have been telling you and you wonder, can that actually be true? And the answer is uh, apparently yes. Right. Yeah, that's what that 1995 World Series Game 6, I think, is the famous one where Glavin went eight and allowed one hit and Joe Brinkman was the home plate umpire. And oh, that, that wasn't even the one I was thinking of. There was like a... Were they in the, the NLCS in 98? I feel like that was a... Yeah, against the Padres. I remember like Javi Lopez setting up in the opposite handed batter's box and getting called strikes. And as someone who didn't like the Braves very much at the time, this was like I was shouting at my television. <laughs> incredibly frustrating, not only for batters, but for for certain fans as well. Yeah, right. Oh, I think Eric Gregg was the game uh, that I looked at. I don't know that if that was, was the, a Glavin that's game. That's the Levon Hernandez game. There you go. That must be what I was thinking of. Yeah, 97. <laughs> So if we can transition to the second major area that you looked into, and this is pitch tunnels and tunneling. And unlike command, this is probably a term that is not familiar to most people. So Jeff, can you lay out what exactly pitch tunnels are and how a pitcher can be good at exploiting them? Yeah, absolutely. So fundamentally, I think pitch tunnels is this concept that, and Greg Maddox is probably the perfect example. I call him the patron saint of tunneling all the time. But the idea was that uh, he would try and throw his pitches in such a way that they looked exactly the same until they weren't. And so when you hear, you know, broadcasters and players and, you know, hitters say, oh, you know, he has a really great late break. What they're really talking about is this concept of tunneling, which is that for, you know, the mound is 60 feet, six inches from home plate. And, you know, by the time guys release the ball, we're looking at like 55 feet or less. And the, the further towards home plate that your pitches look the same, the harder they are to hit because the batter has a really difficult time assessing whether it's a sinker or a changeup or a fastball or a slider. And so we wanted to figure out, is there a way to quantify this idea that pitches that look similar for longer perform better? And that's sort of what we went into the project looking to do. And we found some pretty interesting results. But fundamentally, I think that's the concept that Greg Maddox used to call it a column of milk. He would throw his pitches and he wanted you know, obviously, because the baseball is white, he wanted all of his pitches to just look like a, a white splotch in the middle of, you know, the air when the batter was like, am I going to swing at this or not? Like, I have no idea where this is going or what it's doing, but like, I, I got to, I just got to swing. And, you know, Maddox believed that the hitter wouldn't be able to tell with any certain degree of certitude 
how fast the pitch was going in reality, whether it was going to break one way or another. And there are certainly some tricks, you know, you can look for the red dot on a slider and things of that nature. But, you know, he was really saying that the, the more similar the pitches look, the more difficult it would be to hit them. And so we wanted to try and quantify that. So there was a, a line in the Kyle Hendricks article that that stuck out to me. It was something like, uh, we already know what the swinging strike rate is, but we were interested in learning how. And that's that stood out because, you know, in just traditional reporting, in my experience, the best answers you get to questions are when you ask players or coaches, not what's happening, but how it's happening. So, you know, how do we get to this point where like we can apply that to, you know, this is extremely large and generalized data. And, you know, is that, did you go into this sort of asking how, as opposed to looking for maybe something new? Yeah, we, so one of the concepts I think that was really difficult for us. And and this project has taken us over two years to bring to fruition. But the way that I think the big breakthrough came when we started thinking like a hitter instead of thinking like a pitcher, I think a lot of times when you're analyzing pitching, it's really easy to think of, okay, I'm trying to get inside the pitcher's head and what was he trying to do here? We tried to think of it from the hitter's point of view and think what would make my life really difficult or what would make me more likely to swing at something when it's not something that I really want to be swinging at or when I don't have all the information. And we had some you know, theories and some ideas. And actually, the entire concept started in my head about three years ago. I wrote a piece for Beyond the Box Score about Sonny Gray. And the two pieces of evidence that I used to say that this is how he pitched, you know, like 30 innings in the major leagues or something. Um, and I said, he's going to be an ace because his release points are very, very, very similar, super consistent release points. But his pitches break. I think the total like area, if you made like a little you know polygon around his scatter plot, was 440 plus inches, which is bigger than the strike zone. So I was like, he can aim right down the middle, and his pitch can end up literally anywhere. And you know, if you can't tell them apart because his release point is so consistent, you're going to have a really hard time making contact. You're going to you know be whiffing on these pitches, and you're going to be taking pitches that are strikes and things of that nature. And so um, that was in January of 2014. Fast forward about 10 months and I started talking to Harry about this concept of tunneling and, you know, confusing hitters and deception. And how do we get hitters to whiff on pitches because they don't know what's coming? And so it really did start with kind of trying to explain why a hitter might look really silly on a you know particular pitch because they're swinging at a slider that ends up hitting them in the foot you know, why did they not notice that that was not going to be a strike, you know? And we sort of backed into the solution, which was pitch tunnels. So you've measured essentially how far apart a pitcher's pitches are at the moment when the batter stops being able to adjust to a pitch just because of the the reaction time involved. And then you've also measured how far apart the pitches are at home played. And so it's good to have them be close together at the last moment that the batter can see them and adjust essentially, and then have them be farther apart perhaps by the time they actually get to the plate and the hitter's trying to make contact. So Do we know what it is exactly in terms of mechanics or delivery or the trajectory of the pitch that allows someone to have pitches be close together early on and look like each other, but then deviate from that point? Because my understanding has been that, you know, a physicist will say that there's no such thing as late break, that it it might look like that to a hitter, but, you know, in real terms, a, a pitcher can't actually 
change the direction of the ball. Once it leaves his hand, it's kind of a, a constant trajectory. So do we have a handle yet on how a pitcher does this exactly? Yeah, I, I think a big part of it is a function of repertoire and approach. And so I'm reminded of the famous you Darvish GIF of, or GIF, depending on your preference. Thank you. Yeah. I got both sides covered. Uh, <laughs> I'm Switzerland when it comes to pronunciation here. <laughs> but Darvish is actually a really good example. And, and we wrote a piece that's coming out this week called Two Ways to Tunnel because tunneling, it's sort of like pitch FX data. Uh, that's the way I look at it. A pitcher throws a curveball and they may have tried four or five different grips, but you know, their curveball ends up being kind of what it is. And you can try and subtly tweak and, you know, adjust and throw it more, throw it less, but you know, it's not super easy to change the flight path or trajectory of a pitch because in a lot of ways, there's a lot of complicated mechanisms, your mechanics, your release point, where you stand on the rubber, how your grip uh, is, how the ball's released out of your hand based on your grip that impact the flight of the ball. And so you have someone like you Darvish who you Darvish, if you look at that, if you look at that gif gif, his pitches end up all over the place. People are like, wow, that's incredible. And I'm like, that's terrible tunneling. <laughs> but for you Darvish, because he throws so many pitches and because his pitches move so much, he doesn't necessarily need to have a tight tunnel because his, he relies more on his movement and his stuff than he does deception. And then you look at Kyle Hendricks and Judge mentioned this earlier, but if you look at scouting grades for Hendricks, like all of his pitches are average or worse. I mean, he, he doesn't have a single like, whoa, that's a, you know, 80 grade pitch or that's whatever. He has pretty mediocre stuff, but for him, the way that he's able to mix his pitches, the deception that he creates because he has a very small tunnel and a very consistent release point, it makes it very difficult for hitters to decide, you know, am I swinging at the right pitch or where is this pitch going to end up? And I think for some guys, it could be like, let's add a, you know, curveball or let's tweak our slider to try and get a little bit to make it a little more cutter like that'll maybe be closer to our fastball. Um, so there's ways that once you have the data, you can play around with tweaking pitches or adding pitches, removing pitches, and that can impact your tunnels. But in a lot of ways, it's sort of, okay, here's the data here. Now we have a greater understanding of what this looks like in flight and how batters are perceiving it. Can we make some subtle adjustments to enhance it one way or another? And the consistency of a pitcher's release point plays a part in this as well. And and because, you know, Hendricks obviously is, I mean, he came pretty close to winning a Cy Young Award. And we were talking about command maybe being something that helps, but it's not going to make someone with bad stuff into a great pitcher. But in Hendricks's case, all of these things kind of added together seem to have actually done that or to make a guy who would be average or maybe worse than average into one of the best pitchers in baseball. So can you kind of go through the the various elements that he is great at? Like he's not just good at one thing or two things, but he's great at all of these things, it seems like. Yeah. And, and I'll kind of make a really brief point and then I'll probably ask Jonathan to help me discuss the model that we built for Hendricks. But I think the key thing is that all these factors play together. So you mentioned release point. You know, if a pitcher is releasing or dropping their arm down when they throw a slider, for example, and, you know, they're throwing it a little more from a three-quarter slot than over the top, 
hitters are going to pick up on that. You know, advanced scouts are going to pick up on that and coach their hitters. And so it doesn't really matter if it looks a lot like their fastball through their pitch tunnel because the hitter's going to know as soon as they drop their arm down that it's a slider. And they're going to be able to ID the pitch and kind of interpret where it's going to be going. Mm-hmm. So it takes all these different components to work together to really have that deception value. But I think that there are ways that, you know, especially some pitchers just have erratic release points for all their pitches. It's not a matter of every slider is, you know, two inches lower than their fastball. But sometimes their fastball is two inches lower than their fastball. And, you know, so you can't really key off of the release point. And in that case, you can still leverage this tunnels concept. So for Kyle Hendricks, when we we built this model to look at swinging strikes and Hendricks saw a pretty big bump in swinging strikes over the past couple of seasons, which probably I didn't suspect it given the mediocre stuff that he had. But when we look at tunneling, I call him, you know, the modern Greg Maddox, because his release point is very consistent. You know, the decision-making point, we've identified it as 23.8 feet in front of home plate. That's roughly where a league average fastball would be when the hitter has to decide whether or not they're going to swing. So we're using that as sort of the demarcation point of at that point, the hitter has to decide whether or not they're swinging and where they're swinging. Through that point, his pitches are all very similar. They're in a very tight tunnel. They're very difficult to tell apart. You know, what that means is that by the time they get to the plate, even though he doesn't have Clayton Kershaw stuff that's breaking all over the place and the catcher has to, you know, practically dive to stop a slider that, you know, he just really turned one over really well on. For Hendricks, it's probably a lot easier on the catcher, but it doesn't necessarily matter because the hitter is so unsure of what's coming. They're practically guessing at that point. That seems to be really successful for him. And when we put this data into our model, and I'll I'll let Jonathan talk about that in a little more depth, but we saw that a lot of these different pieces and even pieces that we didn't go into it expecting like flight time difference, which is the ability to change speeds, can play a really big role in getting swinging strikes and just keeping hitters off balance. What we suspected was that as we've kind of been alluding to, this data isn't something where you you take any one of them and say, well, you know, you can sort of do like a like a buffet and say, well, I'll get two runs by doing this and I'll get a couple more strikeouts by doing that. It's really about how you decide to combine different things. So what Kyle Hendricks does is he takes two, one particular aspect of his uh, abilities, which is that his pitches have a very low deviation in sort of the X angle, as we would call it, sort of this horizontal uh, approach to the plate. And I suspect that is what helps make his pitches very uh, difficult to tell apart. And that's just a, a, a pitch FX characteristic. There's nothing special about that in and of itself. But I assume when your pitches aren't, you know, d- don't have that huge dart coming, like the slider that's constantly zooming out of the zone and you see it coming from a long way away, that you are then appear to be particularly vulnerable to tunneling. And that's particularly true for swinging strikes. So because he min- he minimizes the size and the distance of his tunnels, So there's the release point issue, which is, of course, how similar it is and often how similar it is affects a lot how it looks at what we would call the tunneling point. But it's all about once you get to that tunneling point, how do the different pitches distinguish themselves? And when they don't, you have the column of milk. And so by sort of keeping his 
X angle low, that is the doorstep to climbing into taking your tunneling and really messing with batters' minds. So at that point, if you are able to keep your tunnels fairly narrow between your pitches, hitters have a really hard time with that, and they're more likely to swing and miss. At that point, if you can minimize your horizontal movement of your pitches uh, from one to the next, what you will see is that the flight time difference starts to make more of an impact. Simply having uh, three hundredths of a second <laughs> of flight time difference at that point becomes deadly in terms of driving up your uh, your swinging strike rate. And uh, also, even if your flight time difference is greater than that, it's just the effect once you sort of get into the tunnel zone and the late breaking pitch could be anything, hitters are sort of at your mercy to some extent. And that's essentially one of the keys to how Kyle Hendricks operates. And I, of course, have no idea whether... That's something he planned on, whether it's something he just kind of figured out, whether it's something the Cubs have known all along and have been waiting for a guy to uh, implement that, perhaps some some combination of the above. But that's an example of how pretty clearly when we looked at how these different factors played off each other that we were noticing was really some of the biggest bonuses you could get. And he was um, checking them off one after another. One thing I find really amusing about all this is that the Greg Maddox-Kyle Hendricks comp has become so cliched that mocking it itself has become uh, cliche. And it turns out, you know, when you look at this stuff, actually, Kyle Hendricks is successful for the same reason. Like, it is the same thing going on, which there's no profound, large-end realization to that. But I just personally find that amusing. (laughs) No, it's it's funny you bring that up because... The first piece I ever wrote for Baseball Prospectus, I wrote about how Marcus Stroman was a lot like Greg Maddox. And the concept was about, it was it was kind of a uh, pitch tunneling 101, I guess. Um, and I made some, you know, animations that showed his different pitches up to a certain point. And I was like, can you tell what pitch this is? Because I can't tell what pitch this is. And in the comments, somebody was like, Rick, Rick Sutcliffe said that Kyle Hendricks of the Cubs is a lot like Maddox. I'd love to see you cover him. And I sort of scoffed at it. And I was like, Kyle Hendricks, please, like, get out of here. <laughs> and now, you know, two and a half years later or whatever, I'm eating my words saying, like, Kyle Hendricks is exactly like Greg Maddox. So read the comments. The commenters are always right. Um, <laughs> and I'm eating my words because I doubted it. <laughs> There's one one thing I would add to this and just in general is that the model we did for Kyle Hendricks, um, I, I do describe what I did and how I did it. And it, it is sort of tricky to do and requires some advanced thought. But the best thing about it is that since we're now making this available and it's just going to be available in general, um, one of the things that people have been bemoaning is that a lot of the newest data, StatCast and such, is not available to the community. And so, you know, that previous generation of, of minds that sort of grew up on PitchFX proved their value and then unfortunately vanished for the most part, it, you know, doesn't have anything to play with anymore. And uh, we, we think, I would say, I think this is going to provide new data for people to play with because we did one model for Kyle Hendricks. There are certainly many more out there. You can look at all of these different combinations. You can try to figure out what seems to be working and what doesn't working, what doesn't work and who does it. So what we're really hoping is that um, other people will start downloading this stuff, looking at it, playing it and teaching all of us new stuff and in the process, uh, not only teach us more about what's going on and why, but also hopefully help bring about some of that next generation of analysis who have actual new concepts to look at 
And uh, so I just from a community standpoint, I'm sort of excited about that as well. Mm -hmm. And you have an article later in the week about how maybe the Rays have been targeting pitchers who excel in these areas and maybe they knew about it already. So it'll kind of be interesting to see whether teams can tweak guys' repertoires and the way that they pitch in order to get the most value from these things and, and whether it's really any easier to kind of be the Kyle Hendricks of all of these new stats than it is to, you know, throw 99 or something, which is maybe something that you can't teach a pitcher to do or is harder to teach a pitcher to do more innate. Maybe you can modify his repertoire to improve his tunneling or his deception or his command in ways that you can't with just the raw stuff. Or maybe it will turn out that that is difficult too, that it's just as hard to be as good at these things as Kyle Hendricks is, as it is to throw really, really hard or have a ton of movement or the things that have historically been prized among pitchers. And just last question, have you found in your research more information to back up pitching orthodoxy and old sayings that you will hear pitching coaches and pitchers say going back decades or things to call those into question. Like, you know, you always hear you have to change the hitter's eye level and you have to vary speeds. And I guess you're showing that there is value to doing those things, but that maybe the most value doesn't necessarily come from changing the eye level a lot or changing the speed a lot. Maybe it's just varying those things a little bit that actually ends up helping the most. I would say this is, uh, you know, I want Jeff's take on this more than mine, frankly, but to me, this epitomizes the two ways to tunnel concept. I mean, it seems to me that your Barry Zito, you know, Rich Hill type of pitcher, they do rely on change, changing the eye level. If you are throwing these big curveballs and high fastballs and then moving hitters up, eyes up and down, I mean, it seems to me you're, 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 almost forsaking any sort of tunneling. You're simply saying, look, I'm going to, you're not going to know whether you're on foot or on horseback here when I'm done with you because I'm all over the place and you can't tell if I'm coming high, low, left or right. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to kind of overwhelm you. And the, and the point is that's an approach. I mean, it isn't that everybody needs to be changing the eye level of the hitter. If that, if that, if that's what you're going to do, yeah. And you're going to be throwing fastballs high and then curveballs high and then low. I mean, you, absolutely have to change the eye level of the hitter or you're dead. But on the other hand, there are the people who say, I, I'm happy to have your eyes focused on the same point at all times. The problem is you can't tell what's coming out of that one level. And that for me is more of the Maddox Hendricks tunneling uh, approach. And it's just, a, again, a question of what you're good at playing to your strengths and deciding what you want to do. Jeff, would you say it's something like that or what, how would you do it differently? Yeah. I mean, I, the thing I love about pitching and studying pitching is that it, it always proves us wrong, you know, and um, there's a lot of people, even prominent um, pitching analysts on Twitter and, and things like that, who will say things like, you know, you need to be unpredictable and randomly pick a pitch from, you know, this optimal set of pitches and those sorts of things. And then you have guys like Clayton Kershaw, who is actually really predictable and yet arguably, you know, the best pitcher of this era. For me, some of the stuff that I think stood out specifically, one of them, and I don't know, I guess this is conventional wisdom or, you know, historical, you know, coaching advice or what have you, but we went into it looking at called strike probability and, and called strikes above average. And I said to Harry and Judge, famous last words, I was like, 
surely pitchers who have really good called strikes above average just work the edges of the zone really well. You know, they they work around, you know, up, down, left, right. They just work on the on the edges of the plate. And the data came back and said, like, no, they actually don't do that. They tend to work pretty far out of the zone and then hammer the inner part of the zone. And they'll work pretty far out of the zone and they'll hammer the inner part of the zone. And we had this really cool line, and I can't remember exactly what it was because we've written so many things this past couple of weeks. But it was something like, if you have really good command, you don't have to throw as many strikes or you don't have to really throw strikes, period. And that was kind of a really interesting thing for me because, A, I got egg on my face because I was completely wrong about how you accumulate called strikes above average. But also it sort of spit in the face of conventional wisdom that you have to be around the zone to get strikes. A lot of these pitchers are working six, eight inches out of the zone and then coming back and hitting the heart of it to remind the umpire, like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I the Glavin approach, right? Like if it wasn't a strike, I wouldn't have thrown it there. Okay. I know I, I can hit the middle of the plate. All right. And I thought that was really fascinating. The other thing I think that's really interesting to me is this is really reinforced in my mind, the idea that individualized approaches to pitching is is the right way forward some organizations and pitching gurus and things like that a lot of them have you know a this is the way that we develop pitchers or this is the type of pitcher that we draft and what we found i think and what jonathan mentioned with the two ways to tunnel is there's a lot of ways to be successful and the best way to be successful is to see find the approach that works for you as a pitcher and taking that individualized approach and, you know, identifying what are ways that we can maximize what you're good at and minimize what you're not so good at, or maybe make those things you're not so good at a little bit better and really blow out the things that you're great at. That's, I think, what we've seen leads to the most success. You know, uh, Russell Carlton is, is doing a piece on this and he was like, you know, it's really bad to be near the mean in any of these things. You know, you really don't want to be average at pitch tunneling because that's bad news. And, you know, that sort of reinforces two ways to tunnel concept because it really is about maximizing it in one way or the other, either be either be Rich Hill or Barry Zito or be Kyle Hendricks and Greg Maddox. But if you're somewhere in the middle, you know, you're probably going to struggle a little bit because you're not really fooling hitters either way. So I, I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, it's been a lot of fun to untangle some of those thoughts uh, over the past, you know, months and even years at this point, we're now, I guess, you know, two years into really trying to dig into this. So. All right. Well, I'm glad that neither of you works full time for a baseball team, because that means that we get to enjoy all your research. And I would encourage everyone to go to baseballperspectus.com throughout the week as each of these pieces goes up so you can examine all of it in detail. And if anything has been hazy, it'll be easier to understand in writing with pictures and graphs and tables. And you can also go look up the numbers for every picture if you're interested in seeing how they stack up. And if you have questions, I'm sure you can bug these guys on Twitter. And Jonathan is at Backlaw, B-A-C-H Law. And Jeff is at Jeff Long BP. So guys, this is great work and thanks for sharing it with us. Well, thank you for having us. We, we really enjoy it and we're really excited about this stuff. So it's fun to talk about.
Exactly. It was great. Thanks, guys. So, Michael, while we were talking, you looked up LeVon Hernandez's called strike count from that famous game. And what was it? It was 37. 37 called strikes. (laughs) Yeah, that seems like a lot. And uh, as you mentioned, he threw 143 pitches, which is also a lot, at least in, in the context of today's game. But even so. Yeah. Yeah. And Maddox got got 18 called strikes and 80 in only 86 pitches. So uh-huh. it was just right. And the wind was blowing in. It says 21 miles an hour in from center field. So like I'm amazed they scored even three runs between those two teams in that game. Yeah. So I know that you and I are both generally excited by this sort of stuff and finding out things about baseball we didn't know about before and digging into the stats. But do you think that the accumulation of all of this knowledge and research has made it easier or harder to write about baseball and talk about baseball and be a baseball analyst? Like, on one hand, we have answers to things or the ability to answer things, whereas once we might have just been like, well, why is this guy successful? Well, I don't know. He Maybe he repeats his delivery or maybe he's deceptive and there wasn't really a way to show it or prove it. And now we can. I guess the downside of that, though, is that now that we can, we have to. And yeah. you, kind of, you can't just say, well, I guess he's deceptive. You have to show and dig into the individual pitch level and look at how well he's repeating his delivery. And these are difficult things. It's a lot to keep in your head. It's like, it's almost exhausting. And I know that some people just get kind of exhausted by the very idea of like digging into all of this stuff. And they say, why can't you just watch the game and enjoy the game on an aesthetic level? And and that's fine too. But just like when I think of trying to approach an article about Kyle Hendricks and, and you wrote one last year, there are just so yeah, many I would not have written things. it the same way if I had known all this at the time. Like he yeah. sort of, I went back and looked at it because uh, we talked about whether he was doing that on purpose. Mm-hmm. And he sort of, like he and Miguel Montero sort of danced around the issue. Like I don't think they ever said anything explicitly about his pitches looking the same to a certain point. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's related because like it's never been easier to get information. But now there's right. the expectation that we're supposed to have this information. And I think back mm-hmm. to, this was, you know, when hockey was going through its analytics revolution, there was one of the stat friendly writers said like, you know, the old school guys are not anti-math. They're just anti anything that would prevent them from being able to just draw, you know, wide sweeping conclusions, you know, anything mm-hmm. that could be falsified. Yeah. So, and I think it's, it's probably easier for us. Like, you know, I couldn't do what, what Jeff and Jonathan do, but like, you know, I took enough stats to understand the process like mm-hmm. if they lay it out for me. So, but it would just be incredibly intimidating if if I didn't have even the rudimentary quantitative background that I do. Yeah. It's harder to have just bar debates or just, you know, kind of like come out with pronouncements and say that you think something seems a certain way because now someone probably has the data to either confirm or refute what your opinion is. And if you're writing somewhere where other people are reading it, then now the expectation is that you're going right to do now, that work. <laughs> the entire universe is your bar and you got to. <laughs> right. Which uh, I guess ultimately it's a good thing. I don't think baseball writing has ever been better really or smarter than it is now. Yeah. There's a, a danger of not conveying it in an accessible way and just sort of dumping stats on the page and and making it like a, a leaderboard instead of sort of telling a story. Right. But I think it's possible to do what you could always do, but do it actually backed up by facts. And that's probably a good yeah. thing. 
two things about that like one i think that is the battle like i'm not to get too inside baseball so to speak but you know like i when i'm writing i almost always use ops plus instead of weighted runs created because you know wrc plus is probably a better metric but like the accuracy that it gives you for me at least isn't worth going back and explaining and legitimizing it the way you might to a casual fan like OPS plus is algebra essentially it's you know it's really intuitive but you know the the more granular you get like it's about knowing when to use use those tools Mm -hmm. and the other thing is you know we're biased both of us being BP alums but I think BP whenever they run out a new stats package like this does a really good job of explaining like what you're going to see on the site this week you know there's going to be articles explaining what it is how you know how it happened the methodology behind it and then the you know the real world narrative example to really drive home how all of this works so you know i think they do as good a job as anybody of not only generating new knowledge but explaining how it came about and why it's important and what you should do with it yeah and if you want to really dig into the methodology they have that if you want to know the math they have that and if you don't if you'd rather read the conclusions that's fine too and one of the articles the the pitch tunnels article at least in the draft that we read has a a relevant previous research section and that section has 57 links <laughs> to pre- Previous articles that they read or drew upon while they were working on this article. So yeah, this has been in the works for a while. So I enjoyed learning about all of that and look forward to seeing how other researchers will apply all of this information. And one more thing for us to, to have to worry <laughs> about going forward. Yes, the School of Continuing Education of Baseball Analysis. That's good though. You know, if you stop being curious, then you, mm-hmm. you know. You turn into a a hack, so. Right, yeah. And speaking of being hacks, before we end the episode, we do have to do our recurring segment, What Did Jerry DePoto Do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Meg Riley about a trade or two. It's What Did Jerry DePoto Do? As always, we are joined by our Mariners correspondent, baseball prospectus writer Meg Rally. Meg, what did DePoto do? Nothing. <laughs> he, he seemingly went to Arkansas to visit the Arkansas Travelers, but there were no major transactions this week. The Mariners are relatively unchanged. Thank you, Meg. And that has been What Did Jerry DePoto Do? What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto do? We're going to talk to Meg Rally about a trade or two. What did Jerry DePoto do? Okay, so that will do it for this week, and we will talk to you all next week. 